This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How the Love Lit Podcast. This episode will feature a woman and a speech that regularly appears on lists as one of the greatest speeches ever given in the English language. It's only 250 words long, and it was given over 400 years ago. If you haven't guessed who and what we're talking about, we're talking about Queen Elizabeth and her speech to the troops at Tilbury on August 19th, 1588. Yes, and as with any great piece of rhetoric, the reason it's considered so great has everything to do with the deliberate brilliance of of the rhetorical choices the queen made for that unique moment in history. I mean, the choices she made were informed not only by the specific occasion of the Spanish Armada, which they were, but also by her position as a queen, specifically the challenges of being a female leader in a world where women were legally no more than property. And in the minds of some, they didn't even consider them to have souls. <laughs> the Tilbury speech is short. It lasted less than three minutes. But over the years and then the centuries that followed, it helped to define her mythic image. It was memorialized on tapestries and on paintings and more recently in major motion pictures. And it was her response to the arrival of the Spanish Armada. King Philip II, encouraged by the Pope, had sent Spanish fleet on their way to invade England. He was going to restore Catholicism and control papal authority. The English forces, under the leadership of the Earl of Leicester, or Robert Dudley, had gathered at the fortress that Elizabeth's father, Henry VIII, had built at the mouth of the Thames River for the purpose of protecting London. 
You know, Elizabeth's uh, chronicler, William Candom, says that she spoke to 23,000 soldiers that day. Now, historians today consider that an exaggeration. And, you know, Elizabeth's Privy Council claimed that there were 18,000 footmen and 2,000 horsemen. Uh, by looking at payment records of the soldiers and personal correspondence from Lester and other pieces of primary sources, different scholars suggest that the number might have been as low as 8,000. Well, that's still a lot, and no one disputes that the Queen, well, Queen Elizabeth I, may well have been the only woman, maybe she's still the only woman on the planet, to have ever spoken without a microphone to that many men at one time. The impact was tremendous. So let's set this up, especially for those of us who may not know enough about British history to really appreciate what was going on that day, August 19th. Let's talk about Queen Elizabeth as a person. Let's talk about the challenges, you know, the challenges I referenced about her being a female monarch and what is the Spanish Armada and what led to that. And then let's read through the speech looking at the rhetorical choices that Elizabeth made so we can admire her craftsmanship and this very concise piece of rhetoric, which everyone agrees she wrote herself. So, Gary, let's start with the woman. Who is this incredible woman, Elizabeth I? (laughs) Well, as you normally do, you have asked a question that could take a long time to answer, but here's the short version. She was the daughter of Henry VIII and Henry VIII's second of six wives he had, Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn, her mother, was charged with treason and beheaded when Elizabeth was three years old. The marriage was annulled and Elizabeth was considered an illegitimate heir to the throne. So she didn't get off to a real good start. <laughs> uh, it was it was a little rough, you know. However, uh, Henry VIII did insist that his daughter receive a royal education, and she excelled. Her tutor, um, a man by the name of Roger Ascom, believed that, and I quote, uh, "No six of the best gentlemen of the court could equal her." Uh, she could read and write in six languages besides English, inclu- including ancient Greek and Latin. She honed these skills, translating for fun, sharpening her writing skills, um, you know, specifically rhetoric, which is the art of persuasion. And she, even as a child and then as a teenager, was rigorously drilled, and she drilled herself in how to assert authority in a world of male privilege and power. Well, it sounds like even though, you know, she was technically considered illegitimate they educated her just in case a scenario (laughs) like this might have happened exactly um she was third in line and her father um obviously did name her in his will as his sister mary's successor which is what eventually happened and of course that's a long and bloody story Uh, you know history's gone back and forth over its judgment on mary she's been nicknamed bloody mary which is never good and (laughs) her story is quite unfortunate for many reasons not the least of which um is that she died of what is likely stomach or or ovarian cancer at a relatively early age I do want to point out that Bloody Mary, or Mary, Queen Elizabeth's sister, is not the same person as Mary, Queen of Scots. And because they both have the same name, sometimes we can think that this is a different person who also had a claim on the English uh, throne. And she's often talked about, when we dis- for good reason, when we talk about the reign of Elizabeth I. She's also the one on the TV show Reign. But anyway, uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, was Elizabeth's rival, Uh, And eventually, Elizabeth had to have her beheaded. 
you know, some of this similar name business is confusing, I know, for those of us who aren't as versed in English history as others. <laughs> like I've said uh, many times, you really need a roadmap or at least a family tree to keep up with mm -hmm. all this lineage. But uh, the reason all this matters to what we're talking about today is because Queen Mary, Elizabeth's sister, the first Queen Regnant of England, was Catholic. And Elizabeth was Protestant. Queen Mary married the Spanish king, King Philip II, in an attempt to produce a Catholic heir to the English throne and ensure that Elizabeth could never be queen and could never uh, return to England or never turn England back into a Protestant nation. And unfortunately, Queen Mary died before having a child and, like I said, probably of some form of cancer. And when she did, Elizabeth, whose life up to that point had been at risk, became the Queen of England. And Queen Mary's husband, King Philip II, is the Spanish king who is responsible for the Spanish Armada that invaded England and is the occasion for Queen Elizabeth's speech at Tilbury. You know, it never ceases to be crazy history to me that all these people are technically family members yes. family members and they all knew each other and they're always trying to kill each other oh that's true and and it's a long complicated uh relationship between all the monarchs of europe i mean it's the story of europe and it, it's really ultimately part of what's going to lead to a world war soon you know but that's a different story uh when elizabeth ascended to the throne there was a lot of opposition to her reign um not just because of her religion but also because of her gender and her singleness uh, Christy, you will find this particularly humorous and angering at the same time. The uh, Reformation theologian Thomas Beacon considered a female monarch evidence of God's disgrace and displeasure. And let me quote him for word for word. An evident token of thine anger toward us Englishmen. <laughs> And, of course, the uh, Scottish so reformer. So they're being in time out by having a woman leader. Yes, his punishment. <laughs> and and uh, John Knox, the Scottish reformer, uh, who, you know, he would help start the Presbyterian Church that, you know, actually we're members of today, was also anti-female monarch. And Knox claimed, and let me quote him, uh, that female superiority was repugnant to nature, contumely to God, a thing most contrarious to his revealed will and approved ordinance, and finally... It is a subversion of good order, of all equity and justice. You know, to modernize Knox's position, uh, he thinks women mess things up. Maybe I should quote those lines to oh, you. Oh, well, the, you know, the joke was on him. <laughs> because what we see throughout her reign, and we see this in the Tilbury speech, is that Elizabeth, because she was brilliant, figured out how to defy that kind of chauvinism that that you just heard him talk about. I mean, she figured out how to present herself, and this is incredible to me, above gender. She would not be female. She would not be male. She would be monarch and supreme governor of the Church of England, and as such, possess and display what culture considered at the time masculine and or feminine traits. She would have both, whatever she needed for the moment. And in her Ascension speech in 1558, she says this, I am but one body naturally considered, though by his permission, a body politic to govern. In other words, I have my body, but as queen, I have a, pol a politic body, a different body. She later says this, I have been your prince in peace, so will I be in war. So she not only refers to herself as a prince, but by choosing to remain single, she over time, 
you know, further later on would appropriate this Christian symbolism of the virgin queen, the subtextual comparison to the mother of Jesus. You know, I'm not saying that she ever claimed to be divine because she didn't and she wasn't, uh, but she was claiming to be God's representative on earth. And this was a reminder, albeit subtextually, an unspoken reminder that God comes to earth through women. (laughs) Well, the Virgin Queen was not an idea Parliament was on board with. In uh, 1559, they urged her to hurry up her marriage negotiations And she responded defiantly. She claimed she was a servant of God, and to use her words, she had been bound unto an husband, which is the kingdom of England. I mean, she displayed uh, her inauguration ring as a symbol of her, um, you know, her metaphorical marriage with her nation. She said, I am married to the realm of England when I was crowned this ring, that I have no children for every one of you, and as many as are English are my children and kinsfolks. You know, this is very, you know, feminine language. She's saying, I'm the mother of the nation. And, you know, we like to think of a mother taking care of us. People liked that imagery. Uh, She was brilliant with this female imagery, and she used it well, but she used male imagery just as well. I mean, it's brilliant, and I really wonder what made her think of it. (laughs) You know, well, it is brilliant, uh, but it was a a fist fight for a long time. I mean, in uh, 1563, both the House of Commons and the House of Lords called on her to marry and have a child. How, how would you like that to get a government edict and oh my demand? Gosh. I mean, if she didn't, how could they ensure succession? You know, and in other words, who would be the king after her? And marrying her was the ultimate prize. And with lots of men, uh, wanted it not just English men, but kings from all over the world, including Philip II of Spain, weirdly enough, and Prince Eric of Sweden, and King Charles IV of France, and Archduke Charles of Austria. I mean, what a list. You know, um, any and every man on earth was at her disposal. She was a huge prize. And she knew this, and she used her objectification uh, as a political weapon to get what she wanted out of these men. And she used it to make treaties, to force her will on them. Um, She also knew the minute she married, it was over, and she would immediately become powerless. And Not only did she know this because she knew the law, but she had seen it in action. She knew what happened to her mother when she was three years old. She saw what happened to her sister. She saw what happened to her stepmother, Catherine Howard. I mean, there was no shortage of examples of women who were subverted and destroyed and killed the minute they gave up power. Uh, She also knew it from her own experience. And, you know, there's evidence that she herself was sexually molested or at least groomed when she was a child by Lord Thomas Seymour, who was Catherine Parr's husband. Her celibacy was as powerful a weapon as her rhetorical brilliance, and she knew it. And finally, in 1566, she answered Parliament with the firmest no to date. And though I be a woman, yet I have as good a courage answerable to my place as ever my father had. I am your anointed queen. I will never be by violence constrained to do anything. I thank God I am endued with such qualities that if I were turned out of the realm in my petticoat, I were able to live in any place in Christendom. (laughs) Well, in other words, she's saying, I'm done talking about this. Yes, she's firm, you know, and, and we see this. And a lot of things that she writes, including her uh, her prayers, public prayers. Uh, I want to read one because I, I just think they're interesting. 
Indeed, this is a prayer. Indeed, I am unimpaired in body and with a good form, a healthy and substantial wit, prudence even beyond other women, and beyond this, distinguished and superior in the knowledge and the use of literature and languages which highly esteemed because unusual in my sex. Finally, I have been endowed with all royal qualities and with gifts worthy for a kingdom and have been given these freely by thee. This is her talking to God. Thou hast done me so special and so rare a mercy that being a woman by my nature weak, timid, and delicate as all women are, thou hast caused me to be vigorous, brave, and strong in order to resist peoples and nations who have conjoined, plotted, conspired, and made league against thee. You know, I'm not really convinced she ever viewed herself as weak uh, and timid or delicate. Uh, <laughs> no. But she is hijacking the language, and she's shutting down the arguments of men like Knox, uh, basically saying, I don't care if you think I'm weak and timid and delicate. God made me like this, and he still appointed me above you. <laughs> you know, I've read several of Elizabeth's prayers, and what I find remarkable is she is absolutely sure that God made her queen. This has given her or gave her great confidence, and she could project this confidence because she believed it. She really puts all men, but specifically men like John Knox and other religious leaders who were challenging her, in their place. God didn't make them king. He made her queen. And therefore, to go against her is to go against God himself. And even as she spoke, as she most often did, with authority and with bravado and strength, every once in a while, because it was advantageous for her to do this, she would kind of let people in and look at the softer side and remind them that although she is queen, she's still a human being, a person. Uh, there's a famous poem. It's really famous because she wrote it. Uh, that kind of talks about this. And I want to read it because we're going to read the Tilbury speech in a minute. And you're going to be able to see these contrasting personas that she invokes. She has this male warrior side of her. She has a lovingly mothering side of her. But also here we see a personal, I love you as a human being side. The title of this poem is On Monsieur's Departure. I grieve and dare not show my discontent. I love, and yet I'm forced to seem to hate. I do, yet dare not say I ever meant. I seem stark mute, but inwardly do pray. I am and not. I freeze, yet I am burned. Since from my mother another self I turned. My care is like my shadow in the sun. Follows my flying, flies when I pursue it. Stands and lies by me, doth what I have done. His too familiar care does make me woo it. No means I find to rid him from breast, till by the end of things it be suppressed. Some gentler passions slide into my mind, for I am soft and made of melting snow, or be more cruel, love, and so be kind. Let me or float or sink, be high or low, or let me live with one some sweet content, or die and so forget that love air meant. So in, in this poem, Elizabeth talks about her feeling human, but she has to push all that those human emotions down because of her role. Uh, her role as queen and mother to the nation was the most important thing. And she's saying, it's not that I don't have human emotion. 
I do. I have this human side, and I I do feel pain. Uh, true, because uh, even though there is a lot of upside in being queen, uh, the upside being, you know, the the power, there is a trade-off, <laughs> and the trade-off is being alone. And to be queen means to have no friends and no lovers and no true partners. Not really. No, not really. Although I am of the opinion that she really did love Robert Dudley. I mean, their love story is famous. It's the subject of so many movies, and I believe it's legit. Not being with him because of this mysterious death, an unfortunate death of his wife, Amy, was the ultimate turning point for her in, in deciding, okay, I'm never going to marry. Uh, well, Christy, that's a tangent we may have to go down in another episode, but <laughs> you know he does play a role in our discussions today, and not because of his wife's death or his long-standing relationship with Elizabeth since she was a child, but because he's the commander of the troops at Tilbury. Um, <laughs> she gave the speech because he asked her to. He believed his troops needed her presence to really boost their morale. And, uh, you know, but of course, it was a genius public relations move uh, for what she'd been trying to do her whole reign. Right. Elizabeth, absolutely, from the day she became queen, had this imperative to portray herself as a female monarch and prove that a woman could be a monarch. Uh, that was always the subtext of everything. First and foremost, she had to portray strength, monarch above gender, a male-female, so to speak. Secondly, she had to portray herself as God's anointed, hence this idea of the virgin queen, who is both mother and wife to the nation. God, the Protestant God, was her authority. She was his chosen representative on earth, and any challenge to that was a challenge to God himself. Finally, although not always necessary, she occasionally represented herself, you know, as a human with feelings. We get to see all three of these personas within the 250 words that she delivers on August 19th. So, Gary, let's get into it. Elizabeth is 55 years old at this point. She's been monarch now for 30 years, but her ex-brother-in-law is coming for her. King Philip plans on seizing her country. His nation is bigger, presumably stronger. He's richer. Indeed. And Philip selected a commander, a man by the name of Medina Sidonia, to assemble an army that had over uh, 27,000 soldiers, and they had ferried them on 300 ships through the canals of uh, Flanders into the English Channel, and nothing was equal to it in European history. I mean, King Philip considered it invincible. It was an en it was enormous, and unfortunately, it wasn't, and the mission was doomed. I mean, the weather was the primary problem. The Armada was battered by storms almost from the get-go to the point that Medina Sidonia wanted to cancel and try again. Uh, you know, but Philip said no, so they went on, and the king's plan was that Medina would join up with the Prince of Parma, and they would join forces and uh, make England a Catholic country for good. And However, uh, Sidonia couldn't get messages to Parma, and the timing was disastrously off. They didn't connect until it was too late. On August 7th, uh, the English sent fire ships loaded with explosives in between the Armada ships, and the English ships were smaller, and they were more high-tech, and they were more efficient, and there was a nine-hour battle at Gravelines, and you know, the English sunk 12 ships, 
Uh, they killed or wounded uh, over 1,800 sailors. But more importantly than that, they sent Medina Sidonia with the rest of the ships home around Scotland and Ireland the long way. And uh, they went up the coast, and there was more and more bad weather with terrible winds. 23 more ships were lost. 6,000 more men were either drowned or killed or captured. And it was a total military disaster. <laughs> well, except no one in England knew what that, that was going on when it did. When Elizabeth arrived at Tilbury, the English were expecting that land invasion by the Duke of Parma with as many as 50,000 soldiers. Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester, was in trouble. He needed help, and so he asked Elizabeth to come rally the troops, keep them in the field, and encourage them to hold on. I mean, it would be unprecedented. The female warrior king. She and her guards took barges from London to the camp that was at the mouth of the River Thames, and she would inspect the troops twice, speak to them once. A foot soldier, a man named Ask, wrote a poem, and this has survived because he was there and he describes what it was like that day when Elizabeth got off the boat. At Waterside, within the blockhouse stayed, in readiness there to receive our queen, who, landed now, doth pass along her way, she thence some way still marching king-like on. The cannons at the blockhouse were discharged, the drums do sound, the fifes do yield their notes, and insignias are displayed throughout the camp. Our peerless queen doth by her soldiers pass, and shows herself unto her subjects there. She thanks them oft of their duties and pains, and they again on knees do pray for her. They couch their pikes and bow their incense down when as their sacred royal queen pass by, in token of their loyal bared hearts to her alone and none but only. You know, that was kind of hard to read, I know, because it wasn't written in standard English and, and it wasn't even considered actually a good poem at well, the time. thanks for throwing that to me, you know. <laughs> I know. But you can tell he's excited and it, it's kind of cool to read. I mean, this is his original voice. She was escorted to the place where she would spend the night by a thousand horses and two thousand foot soldiers. Can you imagine how overwhelming it would feel if you were one of the soldiers? There was a general on each side of her with a flag. She rode past the troops, and as she did, they all fell on their knees. They cried blessings to her. In fact, they were so loud, it was awkward. And she sent a man ahead of her and tell them not to do this because she thought this is a little adulterous. Uh, the next day, she came back to the troops, and she formally inspected them, and there, that's when she gives her speech. Another guy, a, a journalist, a real journalist, by the name Delaney, wrote a different poem about the event. Gary, it's easier to read. <laughs> well, it is. And before I read it, I want to point out the nearest experience we have to this is a Dolly Parton sighting. Yes, yeah, kind of like Dolly Parton showing up at a ball game. We all <laughs> just right. lose our minds. <laughs> the sergeant trumpet with his mace and nine with trumpets after him, bareheaded, went before her grace in coats of scarlet color trim. The king of heralds, tall and comely, was the next in order duly, with the famous arms of England wrought with rich embroidered gold, on finest velvet blue and crimson that for silver can be sold. 
With maces of clean beaten gold, the queen's two sergeants then did ride, most comely men for to behold, in velvet coats and chains beside. The Lord General then came riding, and Lord Marshal hard beside him. Richly were they attired in princely garments of great price, bearing still their hats and feathers in their hands in comely wise. The warlike army then stood still, and drummers left their dubbing sound, because it was our prince's will to ride about the army round. Her lady she did leave behind her, and her guard, which still did mind her. The Lord General and Lord Marshal did conduct her to each place. The pikes, the colors, and the lances at her approach fell down apace. You know, supposedly, Elizabeth comes in on a huge white horse. Uh, she wore an all-white velvet dress and had a steel corset that looked like a breastplate. She had a helmet with white plumes, but she had a page carry that. She may or she may not have worn a crown. There's no record of anything really being on her head. She also had a man next to her who carried the sword of state. She carried a truncheon, which that's an old-fashioned, another word for a scepter. You know, I want to point out uh, that she delivered a speech that she wrote herself and she had to do it with her own voice. And if you think about how loud she would have to be to project it, it's impressive. And there are a couple of versions of the speech out there. But the one most people know um, is the one that was recorded by Dr. Lionel Sharp, who was there and most likely is Robert uh, Dudley's chaplain. And there are some claims that it was printed and passed around to the tens of thousands who couldn't have possibly heard her voice. But, you know, I'm not really sure about that. But Christy, are we ready to read this speech that we've built up? Yes, let's do it. If you have access to our website, you know, we'll have it printed there. Look it up. It's short. You can follow along. I'll read it once and then we'll go through it and point out some of the things that are interesting, uh, things that relate to some of those objectives we talked about that she was trying to establish uh, when she wrote it that you may not have noticed on first pass. So here it goes. My loving people. We have been persuaded by some that are careful of our safety to take heed how we commit ourselves to armed multitudes for fear of treachery. But I assure you, I do not desire to live to distrust my faithful and loving people. Let tyrants fear. I have always so behaved myself that under God, I have placed my chiefest strength and safeguard in the loyal hearts and goodwill of my subjects. And therefore, I come amongst you. As you see at this time, not for my recreation and disport, but being resolved in the midst and heat of the battle to live and die amongst you all, to lay down for my God and for my kingdom and for my people, my honor and my blood, even in the dust. I know I have the body, but of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king and a king of England too. And think foul scorn that Parma or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare to invade the borders of my realm, to which rather than any dishonor shall grow by me. I myself will take up arms. I myself will be your general, judge and rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field. I know already for your forwardness you have deserved crowns, rewards and crowns. And we do assure you in the word of a prince, they shall be duly paid you. In the meantime... My lieutenant general shall be in my stead, then whom never prince commanded a more noble or worthy subject, not doubting, but by your obedience to my general, by your concord in the camp and your valor in the field, we shall shortly have a famous victory over those enemies of my God, 
of my kingdom and of my people. Well, I mean, you're right. It's short. That's a little over two minutes. Uh, <laughs> so let's go through it. All right. My loving people. Let's talk. Let's start there. That's a term of endearment. And I told you, she's a female male monarch. And she goes back and forth talking to her subjects as a man and then as a woman. But now here she is. I mean, she showed up. She's in a soldier's outfit. Ask the soldier whose poem we read said later that she looked like Mars, the god of war. But she addresses them as a mom would, my loving people. From there, let's look at the next line. We have been persuaded by some that are careful of our safety to take heed how we commit ourselves to armed multitudes for fear of treachery. Notice that she uses the pronoun we. Why, why is she saying we? It's just her. But that's what we call the royal we. Uh, and this is true today. When a monarch is speaking as the monarch, they don't use the word I. The king or queen uses the word we. I'm not speaking as myself. I'm speaking as the crown, as God's representative. So she starts like that. What does she mean here? She's saying, well, the crown has been told that maybe I shouldn't be here. It's not safe for the crown to come to a battlefield. The subtext, obviously, is that one of her very own subjects might kill her. You know, uh, let me interrupt for a second here and say uh, that that's not a crazy fear, Um Four years prior to this, that's exactly what happened in the Netherlands to William the Silent, Prince of Orange. Well, she's not afraid, and she addresses that, because, but she switches out of the royal we into the personal I. I assure you, I do not desire to distrust my faithful and loving people. Let tyrants fear. I have always so behaved myself. Under God, I have placed my chiefest strength and safeguard in the loyal hearts and goodwill of my subjects, and therefore... I come amongst you, as you see at this time, not for my recreation or disport, but being resolved in the midst and heat of battle to live and die amongst you all. You know, there's a lot going on in that one sentence. That was really one sentence. But did you notice she's saying the crown was told not to come, but I insisted. I trust you. She's calling these soldiers her faithful and loving people. She's not afraid to come to them because she's not a tyrant. If she were a tyrant, they might try to kill her. But she has a loving relationship with her subjects. She's used the word loving twice now. And I also noticed that she invoked God. I was just going to say that. Yes, she's under God and she behaves in accordance to that. It's a reminder. God picked me to be a sovereign, but also to be a warrior. Listen to her talk about living and dying. That's how soldiers talk. Look at the rest of the sentence. To live and die amongst you all, to lay down for God my kingdom and my people, my honor and my blood, even in the dust. That line, even in the dust, is a biblical line. She pulled it right out of the Bible. It's a line that King David used in the Psalms. I mean, then, of course, after that, this is the line that everybody knows. Uh, she says this, I know I have the body, but of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and the stomach of a king and a king of England, too. And think foul scorn that Parma or Spain or any prince of Europe should dare invade the borders of my realm to which any dishonor shall grow by me. Well, so uh, we see her combining this, the male and female imagery, you know, the body of a woman, but the heart and stomach of a king. And I noticed not just any man, but a king of England. 
Exactly. Uh, a physically uh, superior specimen, clearly. <laughs> As the, the English soldiers would have enjoyed hearing. <laughs> yes, to those other European bodies. I mean, she invokes the physical again. Listen to this. I myself will be your general, your judge, and rewarder of every one of your virtues in the field. Have you noticed how many times she uses this parallelism of three? If you notice, she spoke about herself uh, doing this for her God, her kingdom, and her people. There's the three again. She is a general, a judge, and a rewarder. She relates to them various times in these three ways. And the third may be the most important. I mean, there have been a lot of problems with soldiers getting paid, uh, and many were worried they weren't going to be. Right. And she specifically addresses that in the next sentence. But when she talks about money, notice that she switches back to the royal we, meaning the crown will pay you. And when she does refer to herself like that, she's talking in the masculine. She assures them with the word of a prince, not a princess, but a prince. Listen, we do assure you and the word of a prince they shall duly pay you. I mean, in the meantime, my lieutenant general shall be my stead, then whom never prince commanded a more noble or worthy subject, not doubting, but by your obedience to my general, by your conquered in the camp and your valor in the field, we shall shortly have a famous victory over those enemies of my God, my kingdom, and my people. Again, notice the threes after calling herself prince. She does that twice. Well, the response, as you can imagine, was insane. I mean, the the queen returned to her barge to London with the mission accomplished. I mean, it was an act of considerable personal courage and something she didn't have to do. And her presence there was really uh, presented as a major element in the defeat of the Spanish force. And it was considered her mediation between England and God. And since the Armada was really defeated by the weather, it appeared God had taken England's side and put it under protection, and the Protestant wind uh, that scattered the Armada was proof of that. I mean, it was called the Deliverance of 88, and it's become a national memory. Um, it defined uh, her even further as a myth. It did, and I want, I want to end with an excerpt from what has been called the Golden Speech of 1601. This is going to be later on again delivered just a little over a year before she would die. Uh, The occasion for this one has to do with government monopolies and policy change, a little less dramatic. I know, and and that's not why I'm bringing it up. But what I want to point out is uh, I want us to see in this speech, again, Elizabeth invokes those same images of of both genders, of mother and father of a nation. She invokes her absolute assurance of God placing her kingdom in her care and of her personal affection as a person for not just the kingdom, but for every person in it. And here she is a year before she dies. These are her words. There is no jewel, be it of never so rich a price, which I set before this jewel. I mean your love, for I do esteem it more than any treasure of riches, For that we know how to prize, but love and thanks I count invaluable. I have ever used to set that last judgment day before mine eyes, and so to rule as I shall be judged, to answer before a higher judge. And now, if my kingly bounties have been abused, and my grants turned to the hurt of my people, contrary to my will and meaning, and if any authority under me have neglected or perverted what I have committed to them, 
I hope God will not lay their coops or wrongs and offenses in my charge. I know the title of a king is a glorious title, but assure yourself that the shining glory of princely authority hath not so dazzled the eyes of our understanding, but that we well know and remember that we also are to yield an account of our actions before the great judge. For myself, I was never so much enticed with the glorious name of a king or royal authority of a queen as delighted that God hath made me his instrument to maintain his truth and glory and to defend his kingdom, as I said, from peril, dishonor, tyranny, and oppression. There will never queen sit in my seat with more zeal to my country, care to my subjects, and that will sooner with willingness venture her life for your good and safety than myself. For it is my desire to live nor reign no longer than my life and reign shall be for your good. And though you have had and may have many princes more mighty and wise sitting in this seat, yet you never had nor shall have any that will be more careful and loving. This message repeated for 45 years of her reign was heard and it was internalized by her subjects. There was a portrait made around this time by an unknown painter that immortalized the event. And he painted Queen Elizabeth in front of two seascapes. And one is the English fleet and the other is the defeated Spanish armada. It has survived and uh, become one of the best known images from British history. And it's worth Googling if you, uh, if you don't know it. It's in textbooks all over the world and reminds us that, uh, you know, not only what good leadership can do, but what good PR can do. <laughs> you know, England believed in her and, and united around her and maybe not entirely believing that she was divine, but certainly that she was true. And as such, England has remembered Queen Elizabeth and her reign as glorious. Edmund Spencer called her Gloriana. Her visit to Tilbury and the defeat of the Spanish Armada has turned into myth. And this is in many ways the mythical representation of a very successful female reign. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for listening today. Uh, and don't forget, you can always find us at howtolovelitpodcast.com. On our website, we have listening guides for most of our issues as well as teaching resources. And, and also, whether you're a teacher, a student, or a fellow lover of literature, please subscribe to our podcast via YouTube and Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, give us a rating. And if you like what you hear, give us a review. It's when you share about the podcast, your friends, that we grow. Thank you for supporting us in our mission to make reading great literature accessible and enjoyable to as many people as possible. Peace out. Peace out.